I was camping for the weekend in the endless mountains of Pennsylvania with five of our six kids. My wife, Jill, was home with our eight-year-old daughter, Kim. After a disastrous camping experience the summer before, Jill was happy to stay home. She said she was giving up camping for Lent. I was walking down from our campsite to our Dodge Caravan when I noticed our 14-year-old daughter, Ashley, standing in front of the van, tense and upset. When I asked her what was wrong, she said, I lost my contact lens. It's gone. I looked down with her at the forest floor, covered with leaves and twigs. There were a million little crevices for the lens to fall into and disappear. I said, Ashley, don't move. Let's pray. But before I could pray, she burst into tears. What good does it do? I've prayed for Kim to speak, and she isn't speaking. Kim struggles with autism and developmental delay. Because of her weak fine motor skills and problems with motor planning, she is also mute. One day, after five years of speech therapy, Kim crawled out of the speech therapist's office, crying from frustration. Jill said, no more, and we stopped speech therapy. Prayer was no mere formality for Ashley. She had taken God at his word and asked that he would let Kim speak. But nothing happened. Kim's muteness was a testimony to a silent God. Prayer, it seemed, doesn't work. Welcome to the fifth episode of Season 2 of Breadcrumbs, our youth ministry podcast at Bread of Life Church. I'm Jason Lowe, the youth minister at Bread of Life. This season we are talking about the theme sacred versus secular. When we label certain activities as sacred or as secular, have we really considered how that influences the way we see the world? Have we thought about how it might hinder our faith? Is it even right or accurate to use such labels? The story I read at the beginning of the episode comes from the beginning of a book titled A Praying Life by author Paul Miller. If you've ever had a conversation with me about prayer, chances are I've brought up this book to you. I've found it to be the most insightful, honest, relatable, approachable, inspiring book on prayer that I've read. So while this episode is about prayer, it's also a book review of A Praying Life and I'll spend a good amount of time sharing some of the best excerpts from the text. It's a great book. And the reason I feel that way is because Miller's perspective on prayer pushed my boundaries for what prayer is and how it fits into my life. Before considering his ideas and explanations, I thought that, that prayer was sacred primarily because I was stepping out of the secular world and coming before God's throne of grace. I was turning away from the secular and entering a sacred posture and place. Maybe you could think of it like an effort to build a bridge from my world to God. With a bridge, you span the distance between two distinct places so that you can travel back and forth. Miller's perspective is different. He sees it more like putting on new glasses to see the world through a different lens. 
For him, prayer is the means by which we see God writing his story in the world and see our story overlaid on God's. It's the way we see and participate in God's intimate activity in our own lives and in the world. He puts it like this. Because prayer is all about relationship, we can't work on prayer as an isolated part of life. That would be like going to the gym and working out just your left arm. You'd get a strong left arm, but it would look odd. Many people's frustrations with prayer come from working on prayer as a discipline in the abstract. We don't learn to pray in isolation from the rest of our lives. For example, the more I love our youngest daughter, Emily, the more I pray for her. The reverse is true as well. The more I learn how to pray for her, the more I love her. Nor is faith isolated from prayer. The more my faith grows, the bolder my prayers get for Jill. Then the more my prayers for her are answered, the more my faith grows. Likewise, if I suffer, I learn how to pray. And as I learn how to pray, I learn how to endure suffering. This intertwining applies to every aspect of the Christian life. Since a praying life is interconnected with every part of our lives, learning to pray is almost identical to maturing over a lifetime. What does it feel like to grow up? It is a thousand feelings on a thousand different days. That is what learning to pray feels like. So don't hunt for a feeling in prayer. Deep in our psyches, we want an experience with God or an experience in prayer. Once we make that our quest, we lose God. You don't experience God. You get to know Him. You submit to Him. You enjoy Him. He is, after all, a person. Consequently, a praying life isn't something you accomplish in a year. It is a journey of a lifetime. The same is true of learning how to love your spouse or a good friend. You never stop learning this side of heaven. There's far too much depth in people to be able to capture love easily. Likewise, there is far too much depth in God to capture prayer easily. Things such as growing up and learning to love do have an overall feel, though. They are slow, steady, filled with ups and downs. Not spectacular, but nevertheless real. There is not one magic bullet, but a thousand pinpricks that draws into a spiritual journey or pilgrimage. And every spiritual pilgrimage is a story. And I think Miller does a great job of helping us to see what the pilgrimage looks like. The camping story of Ashley's lost contact lens isn't over where we left it. Here's how it ends. I needed help when Ashley burst into tears in front of our minivan. I was frozen, caught between her doubts and my own. I had no idea that she'd been praying for Kim to speak. What made Ashley's tears so disturbing was that she was right. God had not answered her prayers. Kim was still mute. I was fearful for my daughter's faith and for my own. I did not know what to do. Would I make the problem worse by praying? If we prayed and couldn't find the contact, it would just confirm Ashley's growing unbelief. Already, Jill and I were beginning to lose her heart. Her childhood faith in God was being replaced by faith in boys. Ashley was cute, warm, and outgoing. Jill was having trouble keeping track of Ashley's boyfriends, so she started naming them like ancient kings. Ashley's first boyfriend was Frank, so his successors became Frank II, Frank III, and so on. 
Jill and I needed help. I had little confidence God would do anything, but I prayed silently, Father, this would be a really good time to come through. You've got to hear this prayer for the sake of Ashley. Then I prayed aloud with Ashley, Father, help us to find this contact. When we finished, I bent down to look through the dirt and twigs. There, sitting on a leaf, was the missing lens. Prayer made a difference after all. So what is it about this book that's so helpful? I'm going to offer you three things. First, I think Miller does a great job of meeting you where you are. Early on, he invites the reader to pray honestly, and he points out that honestly, we are all messy. And so his insight and his wisdom reflect this. He writes, The only way to come to God is by taking off any spiritual mask. The real you has to meet the real God. He is a person. So, instead of being frozen by your self-preoccupation, talk with God about your worries. Tell Him where you are weary. If you don't begin with where you are, then where you are will sneak in the back door. Your mind will wander to where you are weary. We are often so busy and overwhelmed that when we slow down to pray, we don't know where our hearts are. We don't know what troubles us. So oddly enough, we might have to worry before we pray. Then our prayers will make sense. They will be about our real lives. Your heart could be, and often is, askew. That's okay. You have to begin with what is real. Jesus didn't come for the righteous. He came for sinners. All of us qualify. The very things we try to get rid of, our weariness, our distractedness, our messiness, are what get us in the front door. That's how the gospel works. That's how prayer works. In bringing your real self to Jesus, you give him the opportunity to work on the real you, and you will slowly change. The kingdom will come. You'll end up less selfish. The kingdom comes when Jesus becomes king of your life. But it has to be your life. You can't create a kingdom that doesn't exist where you try to be better than you really are. Jesus calls that hypocrisy, putting on a mask to cover the real you. Ironically, many attempts to teach people to pray encourage the creation of a split personality. You're taught to do it right. Instead of the real messy you meeting God, you try to recreate yourself by becoming spiritual. No wonder prayer is so unsatisfying. So instead of being paralyzed by who you are, begin with who you are. That's how the gospel works. God begins with you. It's a little scary because you were messed up. And he also realizes that we are proudly strong and self-sufficient, which he points out and keeps our prayer lives small and weak. He writes, We tell ourselves strong Christians pray a lot. If I were a stronger Christian, I'd pray more. Strong Christians do pray more but they pray more because they realize how weak they are. They don't try to hide it from themselves. Weakness is the channel that allows them to access grace. 
As we mature as Christians, we see more and more of our sinful natures, but at the same time we see more and more of Jesus. As we see our weaknesses more clearly, we begin to grasp our need for more grace. Man, that's really good. Miller really understands our human condition. And he spends a good chunk of the book looking at the effects of cynicism. In chapter 9, he writes, The opposite of a childlike spirit is a cynical spirit. Cynicism is increasingly the dominant spirit of our age. Personally, it is my greatest struggle in prayer. If I get an answer to prayer, sometimes I'll think, that would have happened anyway. Other times I'll try to pray, but wonder if it makes any difference. Cynicism and defeated weariness have this in common. They both question the active goodness of God on our behalf. Left unchallenged, their low-level doubt opens the door for bigger doubt. They've lost their childlike spirit and thus are unable to move toward their Heavenly Father. Cynicism is so pervasive that at times it feels like a presence. Behind the spirit of the age lies an unseen, personal, evil presence, the spirit. If Satan can't stop you from praying, then he will try to rob the fruit of praying by dulling your soul. Satan cannot create, but he can corrupt. Do you see that in your life? I know I see it in mine. I think Miller does a great job of meeting us where we are. The second reason I think the book is so helpful is that I think he has a clear and better vision for what a praying life looks like. He describes the need for us to take on the posture of a child before our Heavenly Father and the impact that that has. He writes, The second thing we must do in learning to pray is believe like a child. Children are supremely confident of their parents' love and power. Instinctively, they trust. They believe their parents want to do them good. If you know your parent loves and protects you, it fills your world with possibility. You just chatter away with what is on your heart. It works the same in the world of prayer. If you learn to pray, you learn to dream again. I say again because every child naturally dreams and hopes. To learn how to pray is to enter the world of a child where all things are possible. Little children can't imagine that their parents won't eventually say yes. They know if they keep pestering their parents, they'll eventually give in. Childlike faith drives this persistence. But as we get older, we get less naive and more cynical. Disappointment and broken promises are the norm, instead of hoping and dreaming. Our childlike faith dies a thousand little deaths. Jesus encourages us to believe like little children by telling stories about adults who acted like children. The parable of the persistent widow who won't take no for an answer from an unjust judge. And the parable about a man who badgers his neighbor to lend him three loaves for a friend who has come at midnight. On the rare occasion when Jesus encounters an adult who believes like a child, he stands on a soapbox and practically yells, Pay attention to this person. Look how he or she believes. He only does that twice. Both times the person was a Gentile, from outside the community of faith. The first is a Roman officer, a centurion, 
who was so confident of Jesus' ability to heal his paralyzed servant that he asked Jesus to heal without even visiting his home. He tells Jesus, But say the word and let my servant be healed. Luke 7, 7. Jesus is stunned. He turns to the crowd following him and says, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. Luke 7, 9. The second is a Canaanite woman whose daughter is possessed by a demon. Even though Jesus rebuffs her, she keeps coming back. Jesus marvels at her faith, giving her his second Great Faith Oscar. Woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. Matthew fifteen twenty-eight. And then as he puts all of the pieces together toward the end, he introduces the idea of living in gospel stories. And this is something that I've mentioned a number of times. It's something that has really changed the way that I see prayer and the way that I see my own life. And he explains gospel stories this way. As we wait and pray, God weaves his story and creates a wonder. Instead of drifting between denial and reality, we have a relationship with the living God who is intimately involved with the details of our worlds. We are learning to watch for the story to unfold to wait for the wonder. When the kids were little, we would sometimes take a cheap vacation by speaking at a Christian camp for a week. At one camp, I remember carrying our four-year-old daughter, Courtney, in my arms, walking outside into the pitch-black night and showing her the sky. I showed her Orion, Cassiopeia, and the Big Dipper. I showed her the different colors of the stars in the Milky Way. She was wonderstruck by God's creation. If you wait, your Heavenly Father will pick you up, carry you out into the night, and make your life sparkle. He wants to dazzle you with the wonder of His love. And then a few pages later, Miller writes, The Gospel, the Father's gift of His Son to die in our place, is so breathtaking that since Jesus' death, no one has been able to tell a better story. If you want to tell a really good story, you have to tell a gospel story. Consequently, gospel stories always have suffering in them. American Christianity has an allergic reaction to this part of the gospel. We'd love to hear about God's love for us, but suffering doesn't mesh with our right to the pursuit of happiness. So we pray to escape a gospel story when that is the best gift the Father can give us. When I was sitting on the plane thinking, everything has gone wrong, That was the point when everything was going right. That's how love works. The Father wants to draw us into the story of His Son. He doesn't have a better story to tell, so He keeps retelling it in our lives. As we reenact the gospel, we are drawn into a strange kind of fellowship. The taste of Christ is so good that the Apostle Paul told the Philippians that he wanted to know the fellowship of sharing in Jesus' sufferings. Philippians 3.10 It was Paul's prayer. And the third reason I find his book so helpful is that his book is an incarnation of what he's trying to explain. You see, he tells story after story from his own life, showing how these ideas show up. Sometimes he offers negative examples from his life, and oftentimes he offers positive examples. Examples of prayer, answered prayer, that clearly deepened his faith and his relationship with God. And I'll finish the review 
with one of those stories. In the spring of 2001, Jill and I attended a day of prayer hosted by La Arc, a community for the disabled where Henry Nowen had been a pastor. I happened to sit next to Bill, a disabled adult who had been Nowen's traveling companion. Meeting Bill gave me an idea. Why not take Kim with me to my next seminar? It would give Jill a much-needed break. Besides, I love spending time with Kim. One Friday in May, Kim and I headed to Florida. While waiting for the shuttle bus in long-term parking at the Philadelphia airport, Kim discovered that Jill hadn't packed a book for the plane ride. As I stood there, holding our two suitcases and a large cardboard box with See Jesus written on it in large red letters, Kim began a low-pitched, fingernails-on-the-chalkboard whine as a crowd of travelers looked on. I could have throttled her. I briefly considered turning the box so I could hide its lettering. Kim finally stopped whining, but only because I was yelling at the bus driver. He was closing the rear door on me as I helped Kim navigate the step. We rushed into the terminal to discover that the baggage line stretched forever. Our flight left in 30 minutes. So I lugged my increasingly conspicuous box upstairs to the metal detectors. As soon as we got in line, they closed one of the two metal detectors and combined the lines. Kim began to whine again. When we got to the scanner, Kim refused to put her speech computer on the belt and started arguing with the security officer, typing on her speech computer, this is my voice. I yanked it out of her hand and guided her through the scanner. Of course, my Jesus box wouldn't fit. It required a separate scan by a particularly scrupulous guard. With only 20 minutes to get to our gate, I discovered that we needed to be one terminal over. I contemplated running with Kim while carrying our baggage, but then I saw an electric cart and begged for a ride. As we whizzed off for our gate, Kim broke into a smile. It was like having our own personal roller coaster. The tension was just starting to leave my shoulders when we got stuck behind a guy on his cell phone, oblivious to the beeping of our cart. Kim thought it was funny. I didn't. We arrived at the gate with minutes to spare. Kim had just settled into her seat on the plane, listening to a CD, when the pilot's voice came over the intercom. Please turn off all electronic devices. Kim had to turn off not only her CD player, but also her speech computer. When she lost an argument with a flight attendant, it started again. That same low-pitched whine. Ten minutes later, when the pilot told us we were twelfth in line for takeoff, all Kim's hot buttons went off. Schedule change, no book, and waiting. The whine turned into a meltdown. As I sat there on the plane, frazzled, with Kim melting down next to me, I thought, this was a mistake. I will never do this again. What I didn't realize was that the kingdom had come. It is always that way with the kingdom. It is so strange, so low, it is seldom recognized. It looks like a mistake. Later, as I reflected on the weekend and on the ways of God, I realized that I was in the middle of one of God's stories. On Saturday, I spoke in front of a crowd who listened to my every word and respected me. When you speak, no matter how hard you try, you are the center. Even if you are talking about Jesus and how he loves people as I was, it's tempting to take credit for your speaking. However, on Friday, I was in front of three different crowds, at the bus stop, in the security line, and on the plane, helpless and embarrassed. I looked inadequate, I felt inadequate, and I was inadequate. 
God was reminding me of what I am really like. He was preparing my heart on Friday so I'd not be confused by people's praise on Saturday. I wanted success. He wanted authenticity. The father was taking me on the same downward journey he took his son. Paul invited the Philippian church to join Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Philippians 2, 6-7 The downward journey is a gospel story. Prayer is sacred, not because God has told us to do it or because we emphasize it at church. Prayer is sacred because it is the means by which our lives become increasingly intertwined with God's, so that all the quote-unquote secularity of our lives fades, and we begin to see and live the reality that there is a sacredness to who we are and what we do from the first hour of the, each day to the last Prayer helps to draw us in to the sacredness of our lives that comes from being an image bearer of the Creator in the sacred story that he's writing. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Breadcrumbs. Look out later this month for a special follow-up episode, an interview with a mystery guest from the English congregation at Bread of Life. See you then. <laughs>